This morning we'll continue our series in 1 Samuel, chapter, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 24. Uh, that's the entire chapter. Um, and this chapter uh, tells of uh, assassination attempts by King Saul on David. Um, and, and it made me think of, you know, kind of this idea of, of what are you capable of, right? That's, that's what Saul was capable of. What, what, are we, what are we capable of? You know, what are you capable of? If you, if you, could, if you knew you could afford to lose your job, like maybe you had another one coming uh, that was, you know was uh, there or, or you just didn't need to work anymore and you knew you could lose your job, like, what, what might you say to some people who really needed to hear it? You know what I mean? If you knew there were no repercussions to what you might say, what are the things you might say? You know, what, what might you do? What would you do if you had unlimited resources? If you had all the money in the world, you won the lottery, right? If you won the lottery, what, what are the things? What would you do? What would you do? And, it, and this is always, I know, you know, a lot of us are Christians in here. Uh, you know, we, we always say, oh, I would just do a lot of good. You know, I mean, I get a couple, couple things for myself. But then I would, I'd really bless a lot of people. Right, if I could, if I if I had the, that kind of money, man, I would do a lot of good, right? But what are you capable of, right? If you knew you could get away with anything, what would you even do? Would you even possibly kill somebody? If you knew you could get away with it, you knew no one would. There'd be no con- no consequences. That's that's the position that Saul is in, because Saul can pretty much do anything that he wants. He's the king of Israel. He has essentially unlimited resources, and he can execute anybody he wants. He's the king, and it's unquestioned. There's no checks and balances in his government. It is just his say. So that's where he's at, and we see where his jealousy and anger get him. We see that he has the power to act, but we also see other people in this story who are also capable of some pretty incredible things. So we'll look first, verses 1 through 7. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and Yahweh worked great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as Yahweh lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So Saul finally allows his jealousy and anger to consume him to the point where he now commands David's assassination. He tells Jonathan and a few other of his closest men, David should be put to death. You all need to go and kill David. He's tried to allow the Philistines to kill him at war. It's not worked. David's too good of a warrior. And so now he commands his assassination. But Jonathan is good friends with David. Very close friends. They're best friends. They're, they're tied together in a unique way. And so Jonathan warns David. 
His loyalty to his father is not so great that he will not tell his friend about this assassination attempt. And not only that, he warns him, and then he also tells him he's going to make a plan to dissuade his father. And he does it in in a very kind way to David, because he tells David this, and then he tells him, okay, I want you to go hide in this field, go hide over here, and then I'm going to take my father in the morning over near that area, and then we'll have this conversation, so you'll be able to overhear it. He, 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 isn't asking, he doesn't ask David to just take him at his word. He gives him a situation in which he can hear exactly how the conversation goes. And so here's Jonathan's pitch. He tells his father, David's not sinned against you. He's only ever brought good to you. He, in fact, risked his own life to kill Goliath when no one else would. And as a result of that, God worked a great victory for Israel that day that he killed Goliath. And you even rejoiced when David killed Goliath. He tries to remind him of really the first time he took notice of David and tells him all these positive things. And the surprising thing is he listens. He actually listens to him and he responds well. And as a result, Saul and David are reunited. It actually does change, at least temporarily, Saul's heart and his plan. And he says, okay, and in fact, I'm pulling David off of the front lines and he's going to be back in my court. And so he's back playing the lyre. He's a musician and he plays for Saul when he has this harmful spirit attack him. And so he goes back to that role, really very different roles. David is uh, a real Renaissance man, right? He's on the front line, commanding his troops, leading it, tip of the spear, to then now back in his role of right? Like playing the, playing the, playing the lyre. He's, uh, he's going, he's back into that role. But we'll continue here in verses 8 through 17. And there was war again, and David went out and fought the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from Yahweh came upon Saul as he sat in his house with, house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul. So he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, he said, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. When the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So David is playing the liar in Saul's court, but then there's war breaks out again. There's war again, and you can't have your best commander playing songs when a war is going on. So David goes back to the front lines. He's back to commanding his troops. He goes back, fights in the war. He's victorious. This is great, right? He's, 
he's got a, a, a bunch of new accomplishments under his belt, a bunch of new things for people to sing his praises about, and then he goes back to playing the lyre. He's like, this is great. I can, I can play, play my, my songs, and then I can go to war, and then I can come back and play my songs again. This is, a, this is exactly what I want. But Saul, this, this provides Saul with new, fresh ammunition for his jealousy and anger. Because now he's hearing people coming in. You can imagine people coming into his court, and he's sitting there on the throne. David's over in the corner playing the lyre. And they go, oh, Saul, King Saul. Oh, David, oh, that was amazing what you did on the battlefield. Oh, that was incredible, man. I can't even believe it. Oh, yeah, oh, just a minute, Saul. Yeah, that was incredible. That's so great. Like, and just like talking to David and, and singing his praises. Oh, Saul, you should have seen it. You should have seen what, what David did. I can't believe he saved my life, man. That was amazing. Right? And so this is happening now every day. Now that they're back from the war, it's fueling his anger and jealousy. And so then we see a repeat of the incident that had happened before which is Saul sitting there with his spear, David's playing across the room, this jealousy and anger continue to grow and fester, and eventually Saul decides, I'm going to kill David, takes a spear, throws it at him, he eludes it. You might have thought, oh, wait, didn't we read that part already? No, this has just happened again, right? The, the difference this time is he only eludes him once, and then he leaves. He doesn't wait for the second spear to get thrown. He's like, I've been here before. I understand what's going on. I'm going to get out of here. And he takes off. He gets out. And he goes home. Right? He goes home to his wife, Michael. And, uh, and they're hiding out there. And they see that Saul has sent some of his men to watch the house until morning so they can kidnap David, bring him back to the palace. This is, these are Saul's thugs. Right? These are his heavies. right there. And so Michael, she knows what they look like. David probably knows what they look like. She says, David, you're not going to make it out of here alive. If we wait till morning, these guys are going to get you and they're going to kill you. They're going to take you back to Saul and he's going to kill you. And so she comes up with this scheme of letting him out the back, lowering him down out of a window and so he can flee. And then in the meantime, after he's gone, she makes like a Ferris Bueller style <laughs> dummy in the bed with the goat's hair for, the, for his hair and, uh, and gets the shape in there and everything like that. And then in the morning, the, the messengers come, knock on the door. Hey, we, we're here for David. You know, so oh, I'm sorry, he's, he's sick. Oh. So then you imagine they go back to Saul. Uh, he's sick. You still want him? Well, yeah, I'm going to kill him. Like, go get him. Okay, okay, okay. So then they go back, and they go, okay, we're going we're gonna to get him. And, and Saul had told them, you know, bring him back in the bed. Like, just carry him back to me in the bed. So there's at least four of these guys, probably. They go back, they go to pick up the bed. Now, if you these guys consider, like, because you might think that this is a ridiculous story, right? How could these guys have brought this fake body in the bed all the way back to Saul before this is revealed? But David is the best warrior in the country, right? He's got a kill list a mile long. He's, he's an incredible warrior, and all war at this time is essentially hand-to-hand -hand combat. So he is somebody to be reckoned with, even if he's sick. 
So you can imagine these guys coming in going like, is he asleep? Okay. Nice and easy, fellas. You know, and, and they're carrying him as quietly and gently as possible back to Saul because you do not want to wake this guy up. Right? Even if he's sick, he could kill them. And so you can imagine them just like, it's the carefulest they've ever carried anybody. Carry it back to Saul. And you can imagine Saul even seeing it and going like, it doesn't tell us this, but I can imagine him putting that spear through the bed before he realizes, oh wait, this isn't David. Because again, David is a force to be reckoned with. He's a mighty warrior. They're going to be, be treating him very cautiously. But it works out. And then, and then Saul is, is initially angry at his daughter, you know, Michael, like, what, why did you deceive me? And she just simply says, well, David threatened to kill me. Now, it, it, should we be mad at her for that? No. Because it's not as if things were going to get any worse. Right? It's not like now David's really, I mean, Saul's really going to kill David because he, he had threatened to kill his daughter. No. She gets off. That's a good thing. All right, we're going to continue here, verses 18 through 24. This is a lot of story. Um, you might have noticed there's no application so far. It's all going to be at the end. We're backloading it because this is kind of just a story we'll, we'll read through and then we'll, we'll have some application at the end. All right, verses 18 through 24. Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. When Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. And he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Saku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are in Nioth in Ramah. And he went there to Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Okay, I know that some of that was kind of weird, so we'll break it down. Okay, so David goes to Samuel. He flees to Samuel. We haven't heard from Samuel in a long time, right? Last thing we saw from Samuel was he and he actually anointed David as the next king after, uh, after Saul, and then he seems to have just kind of retired to Ramah, right? He's an old man at this point, but he's in Ramah. David goes, I, I, don't, I don't know where to go except... Samuel is not on, on Saul's side, and so he's probably a safe person to go to, because right? they're not friends anymore. He had been anointed by Samuel, so he knows Samuel. He knows that Samuel's powerful spiritually, and so maybe that's a safe place to go. So he flees there. When he gets there, it seems that Samuel has a, a religious revival going on. Um, there's prophets prophesying when Saul's messengers arrive, and they get swept up in the ecstasy and begin prophesying themselves. Now, 
when we talk about this, that, that, that's partly what sounds weird in this passage is, you know, all these people are showing up and they also start prophesying. And I think we're kind of like, what, I don't understand what that means, right? Because we've read prophecy, like you've read books of prophecy, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and then all the minor prophets and, and people like that. You've, you've read those and so you, I know what that sounds like. What does it mean to do that in a group? How is that a group activity? It doesn't really make sense. This version of prophesying that they're talking about here in Samuel includes music. Right? We know that from, uh, from when, when Saul actually first is anointed king. When Saul's first anointed king, um, he is told by Samuel, you're going to have these experiences that are going to confirm it. Right? He predicts these things are going to happen to you. That way you'll know that this is real. And the third thing is that he's going to meet this group of prophets. It says it in uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. Saul's telling him about what's going to happen to him. He says, after that, you shall come to Gebeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come up to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. So even right here, this prophesying is a form of music, a form of worship um, that, they're, that they're performing there. They, you have instruments and everything. And it tells them, then the spirit of Yahweh will rush upon you. You will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Then if we jump down a little further, we see where he actually, uh, this actually happens to him. When they came to Gebeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. The spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And then when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over this son of Kish is Saul also among the prophets. Oh, and, and uh, sorry, it continues. And a, and a man of a place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets. So this form of, of prophecy that's happening here, when he's saying oh, there's this group of prophets prophesying together, Samuel's over top of them. I think that what we should picture is like a religious revival. This is a religious revival with music and people preaching and proclaiming God's goodness and his word and, and commandments and all those kind of things, probably reading from the scriptures, singing songs, all these things. It's all part of this all together. That's what he has going on. So you think of like, in the way that it's described, uh, this is a Pentecostals, okay? This is a Charismatics. They're, this is a, a being swept up, like highly emotional thing that is happening to where they're having this experience that's going on. When the messengers from Saul show up, they're like, oh my goodness. And they, and they get swept up in it as well. Where now they're singing songs and they're even coming up and, and proclaiming God's goodness and his word and all these things. Like they're, they're also doing these things. That happens with three waves of them. And then Saul finally gets fed up and he's like, I keep losing guys. I don't have that many guys that I can sacrifice and all these guys keep going and they don't come back so I better go with them and so you can see imagine him showing up he's aware is where are David and Samuel they tell him he goes he also gets swept up the spirit of God had already departed him but it's from him but it says the spirit of God came upon him and he gets swept up in this religious ecstasy 
He gets swept up in this revival that's going on. So you imagine he's there. He's going, I'm going to kill David. When I get there, you can't wait till I find that guy. And then he gets there. And then next thing you know, he's just like worshiping. And he's, he gets real Pentecostal. He strips his clothes off. Right? He, he, he gets to, like, he's so swept up in this that he strips himself naked, lays down, and then is immobile for, two, for a whole day. A night and a day, he says he lay there naked in front of Samuel. So that's, that's being pretty swept up. Right? That's pretty extreme, that is what is happening here. To, 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 Dave, to Saul, and it's not the first time that he's prophesied that, that he's had this, this kind of experience. He had it when he first got anointed, and, and that's why they ask this question. It becomes a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? Because that's not what's, what's going on here. He's not, he's not truly a prophet. He just got swept up in it. He got swept up in it. In the beginning, when it first happened the first time, it was this positive thing. It was like, oh, look, he's a new man. Like he, he's, he's ready to serve as king because he's connected to God in a fresh and new way. And then he's ready to go do that. And at first he does well, but then he goes way off. And then now here, at the end of his life, it's not even a, a real experience. It's God pretty much just rendering him immobile, stopping him from being able to kill David. So we're going to wrap up with a couple takeaways. I really have two takeaways for you, things to consider from this story, because it's a pretty complex story. But at the core of it, we see essentially three times that God protects David from being killed. And he protects him by various means, right? The first, we have Jonathan and his intercession with his father. We have Michael and her deception of uh, fooling his father, uh, fooling Saul. Um, and then we have God himself protecting by the power of the Holy Spirit. God uses these different means. But oftentimes, we only want the miraculous one. When we have a situation and we need God to, to move in our lives, oftentimes we are hoping for and really only want the miraculous option because the other ones are harder. Right? Imagine if you were Jonathan and you heard, right, what are some, what are some other ways this could have gone? Right? Jonathan could have heard the news right, that, that his father says, I want you to kill David. And he could have gone, oh, that's rough. I'm not going to kill David. Uh, but and, I'm, and that's scary for my friend, but I'm going to pray for him. And then he did nothing else. Not that prayer is bad, but Jonathan is in a unique position to actually take some action. And not that he shouldn't pray, but sometimes that, that's not all he should do. And that's true in our lives as well. Oftentimes, we get in a position like we, we hear about something or we, like someone asks, asks us about, tells us about the situations going on in their life and oftentimes we can act, but all we do is, that sounds rough, man. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to praying for you. But oftentimes we're in a position like Jonathan where we can actually take some action. We can actually intervene and, and do something to help, which is what Jonathan actually does. Same, as, same with Michael. She, again, she could have, she could have cut and run. She could have said, you know, well, good luck. My father's men are outside, so I guess that's it for you. 
But no, she takes action. She actually does something. She recognizes, she and Jonathan both recognize that God has put them in a position to help. That they are the means by which God has rescued David. They are the means by which God has rescued David. And, and we need to be aware of when God is asking us to act as well as pray. Okay, second thing uh, is that religious ecstasy is not the same as saving faith. Religious ecstasy is not the same as saving faith. Here's what I mean by that. So we, ha- we see Saul here get swept up in this religious revival, in this ecstasy that, they're ha- that, that is happening there. That They're having this high, high moment. And, and that, that's a good thing for a lot of people there there's nothing wrong with it. Samuel is overseeing it. He is certainly mature in his faith. He knows what is right and wrong. He knows the word of God. He is certainly overseeing it well. This is a good thing that is happening, but it is not life-changing for everybody there. Because I know it doesn't tell us in this passage, but I'll tell you a little spoiler alert. Saul's not a new man after this. Right? So he, he's going to go right back to the same things. He's not, going, he's not coming back and going, I had the most incredible experience with God and uh, my heart has changed. David, I'm so sorry for what you've, I've done to you. None of that happens. This is a moment and then he goes and forgets it immediately. And oftentimes we see that, right? As, as, having, having been in, in youth ministry for uh, almost 15 years, like, you see that a lot with kids and people in general. If you've been around church a lot, you'll see people that have these really high moments. When they first you know, learn about Jesus, they have this really high, and it's emotional, and they're on fire, and there's passion and all that. They're, they're so excited, and that's great. But that has to be followed up by a faith that is actually durable and can endure through difficult times. You can't stay there all the time. You'll have those moments throughout your life, Consider Samuel here. Samuel has been following God, serving Yahweh his entire life. And there have been some really high moments. He got to anoint the first king of Israel. What an incredible moment for him. But then he had to watch that king fall. Right? He's had all of these different things where these good things have happened, bad things have happened. He's been faithful through it all. Here at the end of his life, He's experiencing this time of, of spiritual revival that aside from what's happening with David and Saul is also a good thing with the people that are there and these people that are prophesying and, and, and having this incredible moment. He gets to be a part of that. He's overseeing it. What a great thing for him to experience. What a high moment in his life. But your spiritual life, if you're truly walking with Christ, is not going to be all high moments. It's not going to be all high moments because it's a real relationship and it's got to go through all of the phases of life. It's very much like a marriage. Right? When you get married, when you first meet your spouse, like you are on fire, like you're passionate, right? And you're, you can't wait to see them. You can't wait to talk to them. You can't, you know, you're calling them all the time, texting them all the time. Like, right? you're, you're all about it. And, and it's exciting, and you get the butterflies and all of that, and that's good. The problem is that then people get married, and then that fades, right? That feeling fades. It doesn't mean the love fades, and it doesn't mean that, that the relationship fades, but that extreme feeling 
fades. And then maybe it'll come back at different times in, in your relationship. But it's not going to be that way all the time. But we have people in our culture who have that happen and that, they see that fade and they go, oh, I guess this marriage is over because I don't have that feeling anymore. But people who have actually been married for a long time will tell you, well, that's, that's just a, that, that's a good thing and it's a great thing and it, it's awesome that people get to experience that. But that's not all that there is to a marriage. A marriage is much more than that. Same is true for faith. The same is true for faith. These, these religious high moments, right? These, these times of, of having uh, an incredible moment with God that you might experience on like a retreat or a conference or a mission trip or something like that, those are really good things. But it's not all that your relationship with Christ will be. It's going to be going through difficult times as well and hard times and even just ordinary days. But having that religious ecstasy is not the same as saving faith. Saving faith is truly putting our faith in and choosing to follow Jesus for the rest of our lives, saying, my, my confidence is in you. My hope is in you. I accept the forgiveness that you have offered me. That is what saves. And that is not just a moment in time, but that is a life lived in making Jesus our Savior and Lord. We see that, I think, with Saul in this passage. that You can have those moments and have it not actually result in a, a life changed. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and then we'll take uh, communion together uh, in remembrance of, our, of Jesus' broken body and shed blood, and then we'll sing one closing song. After that, if you'd like prayer for anything, there'll be a prayer team available right over here. They'd love to pray for you. Would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning that we can um, read this story of how you protected David. And, and God, I pray that you would um, open our eyes to see how you might use us uh, in the lives of, of other people, how sometimes we might be the answer to someone's prayer. God, that you would guide us in that, um, that we would turn to you and, and recognize that wherever our solutions come from, ultimately, they come from you, whether it's miraculous or whether it's ordinary means, God, that you are the orchestrator of all of it. Father, we uh, thank you for Jesus, that you sent him for us, and I pray that we would all have that durable faith that can endure high times and the low times. I pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.